The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. My question to you is one that John Wesley asked many years ago. His position on righteousness and perfection by 1727 had been solidified. And he asked the question, in what sense are Christians not perfect? And in what sense are they perfect? Now, this question of perfection has been utterly cast aside in the modern church, and we have sunk to the very, very extreme level of saying a man cannot stop sinning. He must always be a sinner until Jesus comes, until he dies, and then the modern view is that death is the Savior. Yesterday at church, a man came into the service who was drunk. You could smell the alcohol. He was stumbling. His words were slurred. I met him as he came into the sanctuary. Noticing his strange behavior, I led him to a seat, and I said, Let's pray. And I got down on my knees beside this man and began to cry out to God, asking him to transform this alcoholic, this intoxicated man, into a man of righteousness. When I was finished praying with him, he said in his slurred voice, Thank you. And then he said to me, But I am covered with the righteousness of Jesus. I am on my way to heaven. And, Pastor, you don't need to pray for me because Jesus doesn't mind if I'm drunk. I said, Oh, my brother, you are hell-bound. You are not saved. He objected strenuously. He said, No. My preacher told me that I was saved because I love Jesus. This man is a victim of the wicked teaching of the modern church. 
the teaching of the sinning Christian. And so John Wesley raises this question. In what sense are Christians not perfect? And by that, he literally means, in what sense are Christians not entirely sanctified, entirely righteous? The whole foundation of the Methodist Church was that a man can be made entirely righteous. It started out with the Holy Club, with young men searching after holiness. And as they searched, slowly God brought increasing revelation into their hearts, particularly into John and Charles Wesley's heart. And so now, these many years later, the question is, in what sense are Christians not perfect? And in what sense are they are they made perfect? Well, Wesley answered that question by saying, a Christian is not perfect in knowledge. They are not free from ignorance. They are not free from mistakes. They are not free from infirmities such as weakness or slowness of understanding or irregular quickness or heaviness of the imagination. Such in another kind, they are not perfect in language. My father, just a side note, went to the third grade in education. My mother was a bacteriologist, highly educated, but my father was only educated to the third grade, and then he had to drop out of school and work on the ranch. And so as he would preach, he would kill the king's English. But he was not walking in any sin. His, his poor English was a lack of education, not a lack of entire sanctification. So a man is not made perfect in his understanding or in in his language or his ungratefulness or ungracefulness to which one might add a thousand nameless defects says wesley either in conversation or behavior nor are they perfectly free of infirmities Neither can we ever expect to flee and to be free of all temptation. There is no perfection, he says, that is free from a continual increase. In other words, a man is going to be constantly tempted by the devil. That does not mean he needs to be subject to that temptation and say yes. Now, the answer is very simple that Wesley gives for a Christian who is perfect. He simply says a Christian is so far perfect as to not commit sin. One who is freed from evil thoughts, from evil tempers. He is a person, Wesley said, who is crucified with Christ. 
And I want to turn quickly and just read that passage to you in its fullness. I'm sure you already recognize it, but let me just read it to you. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now the question in Galatians is whether you are going to earn that righteousness. Are you going to earn that righteousness by human effort in obedience to the law? And Paul says, absolutely no, that's another gospel. Let me be very frank with you. It is also another gospel to believe that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot give to you and infuse into your life true, honest, complete righteousness. The scriptures teach that we must have Christ formed in us. In the fifth chapter, He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then chapter 6, verse 1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. There is no gospel of Jesus that will teach that a person can be saved as they walk in the midst of their sin. This was the gospel preached by by John the baptizer, by Jesus, by Peter, by James, by John. This is the gospel of the New Testament. It knows nothing of this ugliness of the modern teaching that allows a person to believe that grace is a covering for sin rather than grace being a transforming agent that completely changes a person's life. Is the gospel good news if it says you're saved but you have to continue letting Satan rape you and ravish you? No, that's not good news. Good news is that I'm brought into Jesus. I'm washed. I'm made whole. I'm made clean. I am delivered. That's something to rejoice about. And I've been sharing stories with you from the seven-volume series, They Knew Their God. If you go on our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, you'll find the address where if you choose, you can order these paperbacks. They're inexpensive you would do well to read these stories. I'm going to share another with you because this story is so pointed. And then we're going to go, if we have time, to 1 John. Not the Gospel, but the first epistle of John. And we're going to look at what he says about these very issues. Now please understand, 
It's not my desire to offend you, but it is my desire to confront you with the gospel according to the scriptures, not according to the American culture. What you believe is not nearly as important as is the truth. And if what you believe does not match with the scripture, you are in very, very serious trouble with Jesus Christ. He is not permissive. He died in order to wash us and cleanse us and call us out of the world. Can I be very upfront with you? He died so you could turn your television off and no longer be drugged by the wickedness of this world. He died so that you could be set free from the wicked entertainment of our age. There is something much more vital to be looking at. There is a much greater source of joy and of righteousness that we've been called to look upon. This person's name is Iva Vernard. She was born in 1871. Now, I'm sharing some of these old-time stories because I want you to see the way they struggled with these issues. There was a camp meeting at Normal. It was a time of reunion. And Iva Durham attended the opening day chiefly for the sake of meeting friends. Among them was an old acquaintance, Joseph H. Smith, a pastor. He greeted her warmly. And then in a very abrupt manner, he said, I'm glad to see you here, but I'm afraid I shall have to say, <clears throat> pardon me, that I have become increasingly disappointed in you. When I knew you a few years ago, I thought you were one of the young women who was going to be very spiritual, and more than that, <clears throat> a spiritual leader. But I see that you have seemed to gone mostly to seed. This blunt statement of fact set Iva immediately on the defensive, and at the same time it once more awakened within her the old dissatisfaction of soul for she knew that her faithful friend had spoken the truth. Eventually, after a fierce struggle with pride and ambition, this young woman made a complete surrender to her Lord. What I'm going to share with you today is the story of that complete surrender and then what God could do with her in that complete surrender. Now, aside from the book, I have another purpose in sharing this story with you. And that is to do the same thing Joseph H. Smith did with this woman. To speak to you in a manner to cause you to become awakened to your spiritual condition. To cause you to begin to say, I must search after Jesus and I must not be content with this shallow Christian life with the coldness of my heart. I must not be satisfied with the world. I must have Jesus, not in some sloppy, sentimental way, 
but in a very honest, searching, life-transforming process where I lay down everything of this world and say, I must have Jesus. I must have the peace and the joy of God in my heart. I must have true righteousness. I must have real holiness. Or I'm going to die, and I'm going to miss heaven. Now, Iva's father was a northern soldier. He survived the horrors of the Civil War, only to die of tuberculosis several years later, leaving behind his wife, his three daughters, and an adopted son. Now, Mr. Durham had won the respect of his neighbors by his godly life, and he would often go to various homes and he would sit and pray with them. Mrs. Durham possessed a strong Christian character, and during this very difficult loss of her husband, she supported her family, working very hard as a dressmaker, running also a photographer's studio. Within a few years after the death of her husband, and that of her oldest daughter. She moved to Normal, Illinois, in order to be near a brother. Now, Ivana, then only a small child, had been deeply impressed by the last testimony of her sister as she lay dying. Iva was not yet converted. She wasn't converted until she was twelve years old, She attended a series of children's services held in the town, and as she advanced into the teens, her spiritual progress became retarded by the strong social life of her community. Finally, she enrolled in a teacher's training program at the University of Illinois, and she permitted her studies to crowd out the warmth of her first love for her Savior. Then, too, her closest girlfriend was the daughter of a Unitarian minister. And because of Iva's beautiful voice, she was invited often to sing in his church. As the association grew more intimate, she began to read the Unitarian literature and before long suddenly realized She was engulfed in a sea of doubt in regard to the truths of God's Word. It was the summer of her 19th birthday when she first met Joseph H. Smith. And although she told herself that she knew she would be bored and consequently took along some of her, her reading from the Unitarian Church, Iva agreed to attend this camp meeting in Decatur, Illinois. Now, among those in charge of the camp were two godly men, J.A. Wood and the, the author of Perfect Love, and the other man that I've mentioned earlier. At, as the services progressed, with the presence of the Holy Spirit strongly in evidence, the young woman became so conscious of her need that she finally 
burst into tears, and she made her way forward for prayer. And she remained there until she received an inner assurance of divine pardon. And I want to stop a moment and ask you, <clears throat> you may have said that you would receive Jesus as your Savior, that you would accept him. But the question is never, will you accept Jesus? The question is, will Jesus accept you? And have you ever honestly received by the Holy Spirit a divine assurance of pardon in your heart? Have you ever been entirely consecrated to Jesus? Or have you said, yes, I'll receive Jesus and all the benefits, and you continue to live your life according to the way you want to live it? Well, it was that fall when Iva was again moved by God's Spirit during a meeting held by Pastor Joseph Smith. It was then that she claimed the experience of entire sanctification in as far as she understood it. <clears throat> We're going to speak more about entire sanctification as we go through this week's studies. It was then, too, that she volunteered for missionary work in Japan, but a year later she was unable to pass the medical test because of her father's tuberculosis. And so she continued her training as a teacher. She plunged wholeheartedly into her chosen profession, and once more this talented young woman was drawn into the vortex of worldliness at the college. In fact, for the next two years, she so far laid aside her religious convictions as to indulge in card-playing and even yield to the allurement of the theater and the opera. Now, I want you to stop with me a moment. This young woman and the writer of this material recognized that in that day, card-playing was not acceptable to a Christian. Going to the theater and the opera was not acceptable to a Christian. And certainly, the entertainment of our day would not have been acceptable to them. We have seared our conscience to such a point, and we have so cheapened the gospel that we participate in anything we choose to participate in, and Jesus is just a nice cotton candy add-on to an already full life. And so there is no conviction in our spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not speak. And there's no interest in the serious reading of Scripture, and there's no time for serious prayer and meditation. And we are offended if someone su should possibly suggest, as I am very bluntly suggesting, that if you continue to walk in this shallowness, you cannot be saved. You will miss heaven's glory. Hell is going to be full of well-intentioned Christians. They will end up there quite by accident. And they will say, why? 
And the Lord will say, because I never knew you. Because you knew the Kardashians and you knew the Redskins and you knew the television shows and you knew this and you knew that. But you never took time to know Jesus. You were so full of your worldly ambition and so full of your entertainment and so full of your friendships that you never took time to become friends with Jesus. Now I know holiness in our day has gone to seed. Holy, holy church, holiness churches today are largely legalistic with the rules of don't do this and do that. I know I was raised in a church like that, the Seventh-day Adventist church, utterly full of legalism. Praise God, he delivered me many years ago from that wicked church. He showed me a whole new way to walk through the writings of the scriptures first and John Wesley second. Well, the education Iva was receiving caused her to become quite an intellectual, and so she enrolled in 1892 at Wesley's College for Girls. Her charming personality and the bent of her intellect caused a professor to become quite interested in her and urged her to study modern languages. He was made the president of Swarthmore College near Philadelphia, and he invited Iva to spend the Christmas holidays with his family, and she happily agreed, was honored to do so. This year at, at Wesley, Wellesley College for Girls was, she said, one of the most exciting years of her life. It was culturally such a, an expansion of her, of her mind. But she said, I was not submitted to God. She pushed God away. And as a result, there was great spiritual unrest in her soul as she was in California teaching. In turmoil of soul, one Sunday she attended a Methodist church in Santa Ana, California. And much to her astonishment, the pastor that day was Pastor J.A. Wood, and his sermon was on the words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it brought back floods of memories of better days spiritually. And once again, Iva turned to the Bible study and to prayer to search after God. After her teaching, she returned to normal. And there the worldly ambitions again became uppermost. Her professor friend from Swarthmore tried to convince her to go with the family to Germany where she could study in some of the great schools like Oxford and during the holidays she could refine her French and her German with entire immersion. The future beckoned to her and this professor promised that he would give her a scholarship 
an entire scholarship to Swarthmore, near Philadelphia. She began to pray. And as she prayed, she came into a place of agonizing struggle, trying to discern what God wanted for her. And finally, in deep throes of anguish, she said yes to a question that God asked her. He asked her, will you forever put the spiritual life with me before the intellectual life? She said yes. And having thus decided, she now had to face her professor friend and tell him of the change of plans. He happened to be visiting at that time, and so with the scholarship certificate in hand, she approached him with a great deal of apprehension. And she said, I must return the scholarship. I cannot go to Swarthmore this year. And he was both astonished and grieved by her words. He said, You make me feel like I'm attending a funeral. She replied, You are my funeral. Then hoping he would understand, she added, I've made my choice to be spiritual first. And that means an unswerving, a one, an unswerving allegiance to Christ Jesus in every detail. And to her great astonishment, this professor replied in a most kindly manner, and he said, I would so much rather you would be a noble woman than a great scholar. She was scarcely able to control emotions. She rushed home and she threw herself across her bed in a great flood of tears. She later said that life had never looked so desolate as when she accepted the cross with its death to self. In desperation she cried, O oh God, I must hear from thee. Reaching for her Bible, she opened it, and the words of Isaiah 60, verse 1, sprang up at her. Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. At once a wonderful sense of inward purity gave her the assurance that God had, without a shadow of a doubt, accepted her sacrifice and her empty heart become filled with unutterable peace. I want to stop in the story again and ask you the question. Have you made a sacrifice of your life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever done what this woman did? I can tell you I did that when God separated me from all professional ministry for seven years and isolated me and simply had me read the scriptures Genesis to Revelation more than 50 times just read and read and reread and read and reread and pray and cry out to God and finally he asked me 
Now will you go and open a national prayer chapel? And I agonized over that. It was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. And that's when I went to New York City at the invitation of a friend and was introduced to Pastor David Wilkerson. And in front of his great congregation, called me forward laid his hands on me and prayed over me and commissioned me as a pastor of the National Prayer Chapel, which did not exist yet. And he said to me, Pastor Ray, if you want me to, I will come and I will preach a series for you and invite people. And I said, no, my brother, no. I'm honored that you would ask, but no, if the National Prayer Chapel is going to be a work of God, it must be a work of God from the very beginning. And it must be that the Spirit of God comes in power and He creates what He chooses. I cannot follow the example of the worldly church and bring in a great speaker like you and attract people with great messages and great music that I hire. It must be a small work breathed upon by the Holy Spirit. And he smiled and he said, I was hoping that would be your response. I will help you financially. And over the period of the first 10 years, Pastor David Wilkerson sent in excess of $150,000 to support the work of the National Prayer Chapel. Now, we're still very small. And God is purifying a people. He's cleansing and growing like oaks of righteousness, men and women who will stand though the heavens fall, who will not be blown away by disappointment, who will not be blown away because things don't go the way they think they ought to go. They won't be blown away with bitterness and anger and, and self-pity, but they'll stand though the heavens fall. I'm waiting for God to do whatever he chooses to do because it doesn't belong to me. This radio broadcast doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus. And just a side note, I'm so grateful that all of you, many of you, stepped forward. I have a whole sheaf of letters that came in the last several days with enough money to pay for the entire radio broadcast for last month. I'm very grateful for your sacrifice. <laughs> See, this is not listener-sponsored radio. This is Jesus-sponsored radio. And I faithfully do my work in the prayer closet praying for you. And then he moves in your heart to support the work of God as it's always been supported by the free will offerings of God's people. I had to lay down my life. I had to lay down all expectation of ever being a successful pastor. I left behind great churches that I've pastored in the past, and I became nobody. And then I'm on the radio, and nobody knows me on the radio. You don't know what I look like. I go wherever I choose to go and no one recognizes me 
I rejoice in that hiddenness. I cannot be somebody. Jesus has to be somebody. So I laid down my life. I sacrificed my life and my money and my time and my energy. And it's cost me everything. But I rejoice in what Jesus is doing in your hearts. I rejoice in the testimonies that you send to me and those who come to the prayer chapel. I rejoice in the glorious work of God making men and women righteous. Really righteous, pure, holy, set apart for God. This young woman made that sacrifice. It was then she discovered that her mother had been praying for her. And while she was waiting for the next step to be made clear, Iva began to accept invitations, first to sing, and then she started getting invitations to preach, to aid in the revival efforts in various churches, holding evangelistic series. Men came from the river bottoms, barefooted with guns in their hip pockets, she relates. It was a far cry from Wellesley College and the New England Conservatory. But she says, my heart was at rest through it all. And these men became wonderful Christian men. Throughout those early days, the Holy Spirit gave her such unction as she preached. Iva became more and more convinced that definite Christian service was God's will for her. She waited upon him. However, she balked at the thought of preaching. She disapproved of women preachers. How could she be one? And then to the Methodist church at that time was no longer ordaining women for preaching. And she had no desire to be a nondescript ministry with no particular denominational recognition. So she earnestly prayed for guidance, earnestly asking that she be excused from preaching. Well, that summer, a friend, the superintendent of deaconesses in Buffalo, New York, visited Normal and asked Iva to consider returning with her to serve as a deaconess. Now, deaconesses in that day were not like today. They were not a, an honorary position. And this young woman became convinced that this was God's plan for her life. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and the darkness will be as noonday sun. And perhaps, too, there was the comforting thought that in this sphere of work she would not be required to preach. She had a sincere desire to serve, to serve Jesus and his people. And so a year later, it became a reality. 
She arrived in Buffalo with the appointment as field representative to conference evangelism. She adopted the deaconess's dress. They wore a bonnet with a white silk tie dressed in black. This was extremely useful to her as she walked through the city and in the missions, in church circles. This period of Christian service was not without its problems. The Methodist Conference was not loyal to the doctrine of sanctification, which Iva believed and had experienced, and some of the pastors that she was called upon to assist were drifting from the old-fashioned standards of Methodism and did not wish again to revert to the old paths. In deep distress of soul, she would pray, O Lord, please let me go to Japan or Africa or anywhere rather than this burned-over territory among this prejudiced, stiff-necked people. It pleased God, however, not to answer this cry in her heart. So Iva continued, midst many hardships in her deaconess's work. In her travel, she lodged in accommodations often poorly heated. The monthly allowance for deaconesses in the Methodist Church was $8. She accepted the position, trusting God alone for her personal needs. In January 1896, she assisted in revival services in a wealthy church, her travail of soul was such that during her three-week stay she was not able to stand in the pulpit without first taking refreshment. She literally wore herself out, crying out to God against this wickedness that was invading the Methodist church. And I want to just say a note, please. The Methodist church of today has become utterly corrupt. If you attend a Methodist church, I urge you to flee from it. The Methodist church today does not believe in entire sanctification. They do not believe in the second work of grace. They have completely forsaken the teachings of John Wesley. There is still the form, but not the substance. And we will see the Methodist church continue and I suspect that they will soon vote to ordain homosexual bishops. This was a very hard time for, for this young woman. A very wealthy woman was converted through her ministry and invited her to stay in her home where she was finally receiving well-cooked meals and warm clothing. This woman covered her needs gloriously. I know God is going to do the same thing with this radio broadcast that soon very wealthy people who listen to this broadcast, some of you, are going to step forward and say, please, Pastor, go to the FM side of the dial where many more people will hear. I'm waiting on God to do that work. It's God's work. In the spring of 1898, Iva was appointed deaconess at large. And that meant that her duties would now take her all over the United States, where she opened training institutes for other deaconesses. She gave addresses 
at Epworth League and convocations and performed other duties. But she realized to an increasing extent that church organization and policies and politics were taking the place of active evangelism in the Methodist Church. After a day of fasting and prayer to God for a revelation of His will, in regard to the matter, divine guidance came in the promise, I will make my words in thy mouth like fire. And in the scripture, many believed on him for the sayings of the women. John 4.39 She said she laughed aloud and the cloud lifted. And at last she realized she was called to evangelism. And she began walking in that evangelism knowing that the blessing of God was with her but also knowing that she was not going to long be allowed to remain in the Methodist church and finally she did leave and she said I understand the issue I've made my choice I am presenting my resignation. I also understand the tendency of modernism, and I've made my choice to remain with orthodox Methodism. I believe that the two epical experiences in grace are scriptural. I have sought them. I believe I've entered into both. Such realities of Christian experience can never become out of date. Now please hear me in the last minutes we have of this, of this broadcast. There must come a great cry in our heart for a different kind of righteousness, for real righteousness. There must come a cry in our heart that says, I am going to separate from the world and from all that is worldly, even if it's called church. There must come a great discomfort into our souls with our spiritual condition in America, or we are going to be swept away and lost. What is your spiritual condition today? And have you made the sacrifice of your life for Jesus Christ, or have you tried to add him as a cotton candy mouth kind of sweet thing to your already full life? Jesus is asking you to lay down your full life and get on your face before God and weep before him over your deadness and your coldness and to come alive in the spirit and say, I must have Jesus. Some of you, praise God, are already doing this and I love you for it. Don't be self-satisfied. Reach out for Jesus, please, my brother, my sister. Break the shallow numbness of your heart. Turn off your television. Turn off the wickedness of our culture and seek after Jesus. Stop spending all that time in the cell phone and the internet and every other foolish thing and go after Jesus. He's the only thing that's real and is the only person who will satisfy the cry of your heart. We're out of time today. I want to pray. Lord, I just cry out to you in the minute left. Jesus, only by a work of grace can you come 
and minister to each listener. Lord, I plead with you, come minister now. Bring unrest into those who are self-satisfied. Lord, thank you. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I'm praying for you. And I love you. I'll talk to you soon. from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.